probably be a lengthy series, I don't know, the next seven, eight years in the book of Revelation. I thought it would be helpful this week to give just a little taste of the book of Revelation uh, by reading that as our, our, our scripture reading prior to the sermon passage, but then, but then uh, going to a passage of scripture that is apocalyptic in nature. And so our sermon passage is uh, taken from Zechariah 14, verses 6 to 11. Our scripture reading, however, which we'll read first, is Revelation 22, verses 1 to 13. And I think as we read these two uh, in conjunction with one another, you, you'll begin to see that there's a, there's a lot of overlap. These, uh, these passages of scripture, while not identical, are complementary of one another, um, and they inform one another. Uh, they, uh, Zechariah 14 helps us to better understand Revelation 22, and vice versa. And so we'll look at these passages of uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic scripture because apocalyptic, apocalyptic scripture, I can't even pronounce the word, uh, is difficult. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult for us to pronounce. And so we need to sort of prep ourselves. We need to kind of get in a, in a zone, as it were, a way of thinking. And so, Lord willing, uh, our sermon passage this morning, as well as the scripture reading, will help us to set the stage for uh, our movement into the book of Revelation, Lord willing, next week. Uh, so Revelation 22, verses 1 to 13 is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is Zechariah 14, verses 6 to 11. To 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, because uh, verses 1 to 5 give us a little extra context there for our understanding. So Revelation 22, verses 1 to 13. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Read along uh, as, you, as you have your Bibles in front of you. Read along silently. But listen to the Lord speak to you. He is speaking to you. Revelation 22, beginning at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And now turning, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah, it's right there at the end of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. If you have a little trouble finding it, that's where it is. No problem. I'll give you a moment to find it. Um, I'm going to beginning, begin reading at verse 1 uh, through verse 11, but our sermon passage is specifically on verses 6 to 11. 
Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones will be with, ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be, return, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security." Thus ends the reading of God's most holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we confess that your word at its easiest, at its most plain, is still difficult for us to understand, O oh Lord. Our minds are limited. We are finite creatures and our minds suffer the effects of sin. And so, Lord, even the most plain, even the most simple passage of Scripture can prove to be difficult for us to, to understand, at least at times. But these passages, Lord, and this specific genre, apocalyptic literature, dear Lord, it is very challenging for us to understand. And so we pray for your help as we uh, work our way through these passages, and specifically the passage in Zechariah 14 this morning, but also, Lord, as we begin our journey through the book of Revelation. We pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would give us understanding. We pray that you would give us an extra dose of humility as we approach your word. We pray, Lord, that we would sit under your word, not in authority over it. We pray that you would help us to recognize areas where we have misinterpreted, where we have misunderstood, where we have misapplied your word, dear Lord, and especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that humility and that insight. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive what you are teaching us through these passages, the passage this morning and the passages to follow in the book of Revelation. And so we ask, dear Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and a humility to accept it and to trust it and to submit to it. Lord, please bless us now as we hear your word preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So even though it's not a part of the sermon text, those first five verses of chapter 14, which we read, they set the stage for what follows. You can sort of get a sense of how it flows from verses 1 to 5 to verses 6 to 11. And so briefly taking a look at those verses, believe it or not, they describe the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first advent. Now, that may not seem like a plain reading of the text here. You read it, do you really see Jesus there? But when verse 3 says that the Lord will go out and fight against the nations who rise up against Jerusalem, it is describing the day of the Lord when God will come to usher in his kingdom. As one commentator put it on that passage, the day of the Lord in prophetic literature designates any time when Yahweh steps into the arena of human events to effect his purposes. But there is no greater day of the Lord than when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And he came, and he's going to come again. His first coming, his first advent, was was the inauguration of the day of the Lord. And certainly, destruction followed in his wake. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was laid completely to waste in AD 70, fulfilling at least portions of the passage that we read already. And yet, we recognize that this passage is also talking about a future fulfillment, something that's going to to take place later on at some point in the future, perhaps soon, perhaps not for another thousand years or so. Well, verses 4 and 5 describe the coming of Jesus very clearly, I think, because Jesus spent a great deal of time on the Mount of Olives. And so the day of the Lord, it began with Jesus' first advent, inaugurating the last days, and we have been living in those last days ever since. The day of the Lord will end with Jesus' second advent, when he returns in glory and power. And for the Lord, in a sense, it's all one day. But from our perspective, it's spread out over thousands of years. But make no mistake, the day of the Lord, it brought judgment to the nation of Israel when Jesus began his earthly ministry. And those who were in religious authority and even civil authority, they sensed the judgment that Jesus brought. And they did not like it. But there's also the promise in verse 4 that God would provide a means of protection. So Jesus brought judgment, but he also brought protection for true Israel by creating that valley in which his people can seek refuge. The valley that was cut from the Mount of Olives. And so our passage this morning, it continues that theme of God giving his people security. Our security comes because the Messiah will reign as king over all the earth. As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I'd ask you to consider this thought. Christ reigns as king and gives peace and security to everyone who believes in him. Again, Christ reigns as king and gives peace and security to everyone who believes in him. The sermon has three parts. The first part is no darkness and the river of life. The second, Christ the king. And the third, our hope is secure. Again, part one, no darkness and the river of life. Part two, Christ the king. Part three, our hope is secure. So let's consider the first part, no night in the river of life. Verses 6 and 7 say, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, 
which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On the day of the Lord, a fundamental change will take place. Now here we're talking about uh, what's coming. If you think in terms of the already and the not yet, things have already happened. Jesus has already come. The day of the Lord has been inaugurated. But here we're talking about the not yet. What will happen in the future? On that day, there will be no light, there will be no cold, there will be no frost. Scientifically speaking, if the sun ceased to shine, we would, we would descend quickly into a frozen wasteland where no life could exist. Now, <clears throat> I am presently reading, not, not because I was anticipating preaching on this passage when I started, I'm presently reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I don't know how many of you have read that book. I'm about halfway through, and it is a painful book to read. Some sort of nuclear holocaust type event has happened. They have descended into a type of nuclear winter. Apparently there's very little in, in terms of, of, of living animals to provide protein for people. And so it's a man and his son who are walking along a road trying to get from the north of the country, what was formerly the United States, to the south and to the coast to get somewhere where it's warm because it's freezing. But, but the sun is still up there. It's just being blocked by, by the clouds that have been produced by the, the nuclear war, apparently, that, that took place prior to the start of the book. And it is bleak, and it is awful, and it's a very difficult read, and yet he writes so well, it's compelling. It's very difficult to put it down. I don't necessarily recommend it. Um, I'm not even sure if I can recommend it to my wife, but it's, but it's, a, it's, it's an excellently written book. And it, and, it, and it gives this picture of a very bleak, post-apocalyptic landscape. That is not what's being talked about in our passage, however. It's the exact opposite of it. There's no sun, but in that day, there'll be no need for a sun. Why? Because God is going to provide the light. There's no cold. This, this man and his son, they're all alone on the road, except for the people who are trying to, to catch them and, and eat them. They're all alone. They have no hope. They're freezing to death. In that day, in the day when Jesus returns and he ushers in the kingdom in its fullness, there will be no cold. There will be no misery. There will be no sorrow. Now, we don't have to necessarily take this literally, everything that's, that's being described in, in Zechariah 14, in order to get the full impact of what God is saying through the prophet Zechariah. This is apocalyptic prophetic literature. It is heavily symbolic and stylized. If you try to literalize it, you're going to miss the forest for the trees and, and may even end up in, in serious error as a result of trying to, to take everything super hyper-literally. The main point of our passage is that the whole order of the cosmos is going to change when Jesus comes back. Rather than continuing on in a sun-centered, sun-powered existence, our existence will no longer be dependent upon that created means for light and for warmth. Something, or more precisely someone, is going to take the place of the sun in the lives of God's people, who at that point, after the judgment day, will be the only people and it won't matter to his people if the sun ceases to give light because God's people will feel neither cold nor frost. They will get warmth from another source. Verse 7 says that, that, that this will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord. And on that day, there will be neither daytime nor nighttime. 
When it should be evening time, when the sun should go down, it will still be as bright as daytime. That's what verse 7 is saying. Verse 7 is also a, a, a very a subtle warning, I should say, against us trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. It's a day that is known only to the Lord. Not to you, not to me. Some of you were actually alive in 1988, or the years prior. Some of you were born in 88. Some of you are already alive. You remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And, and the guy was wrong. And he kept being wrong. Over and over again, he kept being, well, the reason he didn't come back now, just give it up. There's, you, cannot, you cannot predict when Jesus is coming back. Because if you think you can, if you think you've come to the point of knowing when he's coming back, then you are saying, I know what God's word says only God knows. And God says that's not possible. Verse 8 says, on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, this, this is perhaps the, the greatest uh, uh, parallel to the passage in Revelation 22 that we read. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 again to you, just, to, just so you can hear it, uh, it related to verse 8. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 1 to 5 say this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, our passage in Zechariah 14 and Revelation 22, they're remarkably similar, but they are different also, but their differences only serve to fill in the gaps. Their differences don't contradict one another. For instance, there's no light, meaning no light source such as the sun, because as Revelation 22, 5 says, they don't need a lamp or the sun. The Lord himself will be their light. His glory will shine in such a way that it illuminates the city, the New Jerusalem. Rather than a natural light source, supernatural light will shine forth from God himself. In this New Jerusalem, the tree of life is going to once again appear, not seen since before the fall of Adam and, uh, in the Garden of Eden. And living waters are going to flow through the middle of the New Jerusalem and pour out to the east and to the west and to the seas, unchanging from season to season. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it also refers to living waters. And that passage makes clear that the source of the living waters is God himself. And this is the exact picture we get in Revelation 22, which depicts the river of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing from them uh, themselves. And this is no different than what Jesus said about himself to the woman of Samaria at the well. He said to her in John 4, verses 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water from that well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the point of our passage in Zechariah, as well as uh, the point to Revelation 22, is to show that what follows the day of the Lord will be unlike anything 
in human experience. It will be like Eden in that it will be a true paradise, but there will be no possibility for sin to enter into this new kingdom. There's no mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being there, only the tree of life. This is a picture that we can look forward to. And yet we have to recognize that we're also tasting of it, at least in a certain degree, in this life. We already have received living water. We've already been given that gift, at least in a, in a small measure, enough for what we need it for in this life. We have it. And that is because our God is a good God. Our king is a benevolent and loving king. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, Christ the King. Verse 9 continues the flow while at the same time changing the subject. It says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So far, everything we've read in verses 6 through 8 will take place in the future at some point out there. But where does verse 9 fit in chronologically? It could be argued that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God and that his universal kingship began at some point in his life, perhaps when he was born, since the wise men referred to him there uh, when they visited him as the king of the Jews. But that title itself, the king of the Jews, it sets a limit over whom Jesus was king. The same holds true for the title written on a placard and placed on the cross at his crucifixion. He most certainly was the king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David. But his kingdom was, at that point, limited to a certain people. There are actually two questions forming. When does Christ's universal reign begin? And how do we know verse 9 is referring to Christ in the first place? Well, Psalm 47, verse 7, we read this as part of our responsive reading. It says, for God is the king of all the earth. The triune God is already king over the earth. He is the sovereign Lord. There's nothing outside of his power or control. So if he is king already, how is it that he'll be made king at some point in the future? And so the only answer can be that Zechariah 14, verse 9, is referring to Jesus Christ. As the eternal Son of God, he shares with the Father and with the Spirit the sovereign reign over all creation. But as the Son of Man, the God who took up human flesh and dwelt among his people, he has not yet received his crown as king over all of the earth. This is what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 means when it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Why is that? Because that great day of the Lord has not been fully fulfilled. It hasn't been fully completed. We're still waiting the second advent. Because of the Son of Man's victory over sin and death, he's ruler over all the earth, but his full reign will not be realized until he returns in power and in glory. And so when Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is referring to the day when Jesus comes back, when he returns, his second advent. That is the day when Christ's universal reign will be fully manifested among us. That will be the day when every knee will bow, everyone, Christian and non-Christian, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Christian will do it willingly, out of love. The non-Christian, the unbeliever, will have no choice but to declare the truth that he has resisted throughout his life. That is when Jesus Christ's reign will be universal. He will be king over all the earth. But we need to say here that on that day, even though the unbeliever will acknowledge Jesus as king, it will be too late. It's in this life, in this life alone. It's not on the day of judgment. It's in this life. While it's still called today, that we are called to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. Trusting before we have the opportunity to see it with our own eyes that he is the king, that he is our savior. The son of man will be exalted to his proper place. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the day all true followers of Christ long for. We all look forward to it. That was kind of what I was thinking about in the, in the congregational prayer. When I, when I prayed that there's a sense in which perhaps we are a little envious of, of, our, of our elder sister, Jan, who's gone to be with the Lord now, and who sees Christ face to face. And if, there's a, if there is such a thing as righteous envy, I think it's that. But that's what we want. We want that. It's not selfish. That, that's what we long for as believers, to see Jesus Christ face to face. We can, we can rejoice in the fact that those we love who have gone on before us, that that's what they're enjoying. If they knew Christ in this life, they're enjoying it. And, it, and yet even for them, it, it's not fully consummated. Even for, even for them, it's not fully complete. They're waiting the day of judgment just like we are. We await the day when Jesus will be openly acknowledged by the living and the dead as King and Lord. And it's coming. We don't know the day or the hour, but it's coming. And we need to look forward to it. And that brings us to our third and final point of the sermon. Our hope is secure. Verses 10 to 11, these give us a picture of the security and peace that we will have in New Jerusalem. But even now, Jesus Christ is working to establish his kingdom and to bring about peace for his people. Wherever the true church of Christ is found, there is his kingdom. Verse 10 says, The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. In other words, you may not get all the place names, you may not have all of the, the geography down. In other words, the land surrounding Jerusalem, they're going to be flattened out into a plain. But Jerusalem will stand high above. No siege, as in the first verses of chapter 14, can lay waste to Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem. 
Verse 11 continues the theme, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a, a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. <coughs> Jerusalem on this earth has never dwelled in security. Even today it doesn't. This, this is not talking about something that's going to happen next month. It, it might have been something that people prior to the establishment of the modern nation of Israel thought they thought, well, Jerusalem is going, to fulfill this. it's going to fulfill this. It's going to live in security and safety and peace. And it has not known it. Probably a single day of its existence, the modern nation state of Israel. It will not know it. It hasn't ever known it. Only in the next life, the new Jerusalem will know this kind of security and peace and safety. So the new Jerusalem will dwell in security. It will stand out as a mountain uh, against uh, the background of a level plain. But its security is not going to be because of its walls and gates. Revelation 21 says that this new Jerusalem will have 12 gates bearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of these gates will be made of a single pearl. But what's significant about it is that the pearly gates are standing wide open. They're not closed off in some sort of defensive posture as if some enemy could come and lay hold of the city take it over these gates will never close the security of god's people isn't because of the walls surrounding them it is because their king dwells among them our king will have utterly defeated and destroyed the enemy there will no longer be any danger there will be nothing to fear we will no longer live under any threat of harm it's hard to imagine, but this is what God's word says heaven, the new Jerusalem, will be like. But even though Jesus is not yet openly acknowledged as king by all, even, even though his, his reign has not been fully completed in this life, that does not mean that he is not already carrying out the duties of his kingly office. Even now he is, in the words of our shorter catechism, subduing his people unto himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. If you, if you struggle with a sense of security, bear this in mind. Yes, Jesus' reign, it will, not be, it will not be complete across the face of the earth until he comes back, until New Jerusalem is established. But still, he reigns. He is your king. He is your lord. He is your ruler He's also your protector. He is almighty God. Nothing of true and eternal significance can harm you if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Already you're under his divine protection. The hardships you face, the sufferings that you endure in this life, they are not truly harmful to you. They are the refiner's fire, purifying and perfecting you. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the already and not the not yet, wrote in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is able to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's not talking about life in the New Jerusalem. That's talking about right now. That's why I can say with such conviction and, and certainty and even boldness and zealousness that you don't have anything of, of, of true uh, significance to worry about, of ultimate significance, of eternal 
significance. If you are in Christ Jesus, that means you are in his hand. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. Already, you dwell in security. Even though you are under constant attack from the enemy, but there will come a day when the people of God will no longer be subject to the attacks and the assaults of those who would bring us down if they could. There will come a day when God's people will dwell in perfect peace. On that day, when Jesus Christ comes with the clouds to judge the living and the dead. On that day, you will not be judged. Because Christ, Christ Jesus was already judged in your place. But what of those who don't believe? The commands and promises at the end of Psalm 2 apply. Serve the Lord with fear and, uh, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you take refuge in your own strength or in anything else other than Jesus Christ, you will have no true security. You might experience a temporary external peace in this life, but you will not know what it means to be at peace with your creator. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, as Jesus says, even with the amount of faith that's, that's, that's a grain of mustard, if you have that small of faith, then you can rest secure. You can rest secure because Jesus has you. And so, brothers and sisters, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, the true King over all the earth, and you will be, if you aren't already, you will be eternally secure. And that is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for these promises that we've heard from your word, various places in it, these promises that you are our king, that you are our security, that you rule over us, that you defend us, that you protect us. Lord, we pray that when anxiety hits, when fears strike us, Lord, when circumstances, whether it's at a personal level or at a national or global scale, send us into a frenzy of fear, we pray, dear Lord, that we would ground ourselves in the knowledge that you are king and that you love your children, that you protect us, and that you will not let any true harm befall us. We are grateful, Lord, for this knowledge, for this assurance. Lord, we have no confidence in ourselves, but we have every confidence in Christ. And we are thankful. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please turn in the back of your hymnals to number 644, where you will find 